Good morning. My name is Natasha, and I'm one of the pastors here. In the life of the community a few weeks back, Sam challenged us to memorize a psalm this summer. And in the spirit of rising to the occasion, I have attempted to do that. I'm, I'm hoping to be our scripture reader or reciter today. Um, so you can look at page 562 in your pew Bibles if you want to hold me accountable um, and see how many times I uh, need, need some help with this. But I really do encourage you to spend time in God's Word and spend time committing some of it to memory, if not the whole psalm, a verse or two. Start with that. It's a good practice, and it's important for us as we follow Jesus together. This is Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you... You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, and surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in my inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and a contrite spirit, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. There will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks. Okay. For the last few years, I've had the pleasure of teaching the staff of Knox Camp about how to teach the Bible to kids. Knox Camp is a place where we want kids to learn that God loves them and learn what it looks like to follow God, learn stories of people who have followed God in the Bible. Um, when I teach the camp staff about how to talk about the Bible with kids, one of the things that I caution them against is making heroes out of the humans. So often in kids' Bibles and kids' stories, if you've grown up hearing these stories, you hear, you know, be brave like Daniel, be bold like Esther, all of these good things, good attributes, but they sometimes cause us to make caricatures out of people who were both good and bad. God is the hero of these stories, and every part of the Bible points us to what is true and good about God. Not what's, what's good about people, but what's true and good about God. And so this week I've chosen Psalm 51 as one of my favorite psalms because it tells me something that is true and good about God. This psalm is actually kind of the musical interlude in the story of something catastrophic in David's leadership of Israel. And David certainly is not the hero of this story, um, but God's response to David's actions gives me hope. I want to make a note that for people who are sensitive to mentions of abuse or gender-based violence, there will be some mention of that very discreetly. Um, so care for yourself accordingly. 
Let's unpack where this psalm fits into the story of scripture. So, David is the king of Israel. God had been like, you guys don't need a king. I'm your king. And Israel is like, no, we want a king. So God gave them Saul first. It was okay. Then God gave them David. And scripture tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. David was following God. He was a good man. Um, The story picks up in 2 Samuel verse 11. And in your pew Bibles, that's page 304. This chapter starts with this clever bit of foreshadowing. And it tells us what's going to happen here. So it says, In the spring, when kings go off to war, David sent his generals to battle, and David stayed in Jerusalem. He's not doing the thing that all the kings are supposed to be doing. He should be out at war with his generals, but he stayed in Jerusalem. And then it says, Late one afternoon, or some translations say evening. So David had an afternoon nap. He's being a big mighty king, doing all the important things, having an afternoon nap. Um, And he is wandering around his roof, and he sees a woman bathing. So this is like the second indication. They've got the foreshadowing to start. And then this is the second indication that like, oh, David's not following the script here. Um, He is looking at someone that he should not be looking at. You might have heard, or you might have been taught, if you've heard this story for many years, that Bathsheba was the one who was doing something that she probably shouldn't have been doing. That she somehow was being seductive, or, you know, she was somewhere on the roof exposing herself. That's, there is no indication in scripture that that is what is happening here. Bathsheba is actually doing exactly what she was supposed to do. Bathsheba was doing the monthly purification ritual that all Jewish women were required to do. And it should have been extra okay for her to do that because all the men were supposed to be at battle. So Bathsheba is doing what she's supposed to be doing. David is not doing what he is supposed to be doing. So David's out on the roof, and he takes his little binoculars, or whatever they had, and he's, like, intentionally looking at Bathsheba. And if you've grown up hearing this story, you might have also heard this sense that, oh, it was a momentary slip-up. It was just a little mistake. But no, David is, like, marching towards some big mistakes here. Um... He sees Bathsheba bathing, and he thinks she looks good. So he's like marching further and further towards a big problem. He asks his servant to find out who this woman is. His servant comes back and says, oh, that's Bathsheba. She's the wife of your general, Uriah. Again, this should have been the moment where David's like, oh, I am in way over my head. This is not just a stranger. This is the wife of my staff. What does he do? He keeps marching. He keeps going towards sin. Um, he says to his assistant, great, bring her here. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. She had no choice in this matter. He is an absolute monarch. He is the king. She cannot say no. She has no opportunity for meaningful consent, as we would say these days. After a while, she tells David, you know, I'm going to have a child and it's yours. And David, at this moment, should be, oh no, what have I done? I need to make things right. But no, He's marching. He is like heading towards more and more and more sin. He calls up Uriah, her husband, calls him out from the battlefield and says, go home, be with your wife. And Uriah says, no, you made a rule that when we're at battle, we can't go home and be with our wives. And David's like, oh, I thought this was my chance. Make it look like it was his. What does he do? You know where this is going. He, he keeps going further and further and further. As sin so often drags us towards, he says to Joab, his, one of his commanders, he says, you know, 
I've got a problem here. You need to make sure you, that Uriah dies in battle. You need to make sure he gets killed on the battlefield. And Joab is like, hmm, sure. And Uriah dies. David claims Bathsheba as his own wife. He already had quite a few. And again, he takes Bathsheba as his wife. She has a child. And the chapter ends with this phrase, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let's pray. God, we pray that our eyes would be opened to what pleases you, that we would see you clearly, that we would know what is good and true about you, and that you would convict our hearts of the things that need to be convicted today. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the point in the story where we find out what's true about God, because actually we haven't heard a lot from God up until this point. God is displeased with this injustice. He is displeased with what David had done. And God, actually, what's true about God is that he can't remain silent when a powerful man is taking advantage of a vulnerable woman. God cares about Bathsheba's pain. What's true about God is that he sends his people to make things right. So God sends Nathan, who is a prophet. So Nathan comes to David. And I know this part because it was a VeggieTales episode, and so if you grew up in the 90s like me, you've heard this story. Nathan comes in, and he's like, let me tell you a story, King David. Nathan says, there were two men. One was rich and had lots of sheep. One was poor and just had one little lamb who he tended to like a child. He took good care of this lamb. He washed it. He fed it from his hand. A traveler came to town, and the rich man took the poor man's lamb and killed it to feed to the traveler. And David's like aghast, and he's like, the man who did this must die. And Nathan's like, you are that man. So God speaks to Nathan, and he says, David, I see what you've done. You can't hide it from me. David admits, I have sinned against the Lord. And this is where Psalm 51 comes from. David confesses and asks for forgiveness. David mentions God's compassion and his mercy. And Psalm 51 is a beautiful psalm. It's, it's emotive. It's raw. We know that David was good with words. He wrote a whole book of songs. Um, but poems and good words don't necessarily mean true repentance. I tell my kids often, you know, just saying sorry to someone isn't enough. You need to try to make things right. Do we see true repentance in this psalm? That's a question. I think it's good to note that in this confession, David actually doesn't mention Bathsheba at all. He says to God, against you, you only have I sinned. I think he sinned against Bathsheba too, and Uriah. Um, we don't know what was going on in his mind or in his heart, and I hope that what's not mentioned here is that he went to Bathsheba and confessed what he had done. I hope that that happened. Um, but without that step, I'm not sure that this qualifies as a great example of repentance. I think it's also important to recognize that what David did here was actually acceptable for a king in those days. He could be with anyone he wanted. He could kill anyone he wanted. He had absolute power as a monarch. And so according to the standard of other kings, this was okay. But David was a man after God's heart. He was held to a different standard, and he knew that this was not okay. And I think that knowing it was okay for a king to do this doesn't give us, you know, an excuse for David. It, it holds us to a higher standard because even culturally we know that this would be wrong. And so 
let's not let that serve as an excuse, but as a warning for us that there is a standard here that we understand. We know that David feels bad about what he does. I think you can read Psalm 51 and know that this is, David feels bad, as people often do when they're caught doing something wrong. Um, But I think that that often leads people towards genuine repentance. I think it's that feeling of knowing that you've done something wrong that draws you to genuinely turn around. So maybe that's what's happening here. David admits that his sin runs deep. He says, surely I was sinful from birth. And then he says, create in me a pure heart. He's saying to God, my heart, what's inside of me is so messed up that you can't even just repair it. I need you to make something new in me. It's like God's prophet to, it's got, like God's promise to his people through the prophet Ezekiel. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So God does this when his people ask. God is willing to create something new inside. God does this work in us too, if we ask. David asks God to restore the joy of your salvation to me. He's saying, you know, I am burdened by this feeling of shame. I'm so burdened that I don't even know how to follow you right now. So I think this is work that God does in his people, that when we ask, he restores joy. He restores the joy of following him. God draws people back to himself, and that's what David is asking for here. Draw me back to yourself. I assume that most of us have not done something like what David done, but maybe you have. Maybe you're hearing this and feeling like, oh, yeah, I know that. Perhaps you've added sin after sin after sin after sin to cover up the first bad thing that you did. God desires to draw you back to himself. God desires to create something new inside of you. There might be natural consequences for your sin, as there is for all of us. Um, But that doesn't change that God wants to make things right with you. Or maybe you're nothing like David. This week, I stood in the grocery store parking lot, and I could see the cart corral was, like, way at the other side. And I'm like, and I left the cart. Left it, and I felt convicted afterwards. I'm like, I know that that was wrong. I know I should not have done that. It was really far away. It was really hot. Um, I would say the scope of my sin feels different than David's. Yet, I know the feeling of losing sight of following God, losing the joy of following God because I feel burdened by something. God knows me completely. I can't hide from him. He wants to restore right relationship with me. I believe that I need that every day, even on the bad shopping cart days. And actually, as I was thinking about this, this is why Christians need to oppose the death penalty. If we believe that God wants to restore right relationship with everyone, regardless of what they have done, then we need to hold that hope for even the people who have done the worst things. It's my hope and prayer that the church would be a witness to the restoring power of God. And for me, that means that we need to be willing to give people time to have that process with God and believe that it's possible for God to restore right relationship with people. But at the same time in this story, Nathan says to David, you know, there are going to be consequences for your sin. Your family is going to fall apart. Your kingdom is going to fall apart. There are natural consequences to David's sin. Later on, we also see that God forbids David from rebuilding the temple, kind of like a spiritual leadership 
in the country. God, God says, David, you cannot do that. And it's not entirely because of what happened here, but I think it's partly because of what happened here. And David had said he would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than, than live a good life in the house of the wicked. David wants to be in God's temple, and God says no. God says that is not going to be your job. And he is disqualified from that kind of leadership because of his sin. And it's important for us to recognize that sin may disqualify us from the hopes that we have. If you're an abusive parent, you might be disqualified from a trusting relationship with your children. If you are a dishonest employee, you might be disqualified from future promotions. If you're a reckless driver, you might be disqualified from having a license. All of these things are the natural consequences of sin. And, you know, David is held up as this example of Christian leadership and, and, and as an example of the ways that Christian leaders fall into sin. Over the past several years, there have been high-profile Christian leadership whose patterns of abuse have been exposed in the media. Like David, people in these positions of power have abused their power and have abused people within their kingdoms. Too often, in these cases, the church has been more like Joab than like Nathan. The, the church has been like the ones who went and sent Uriah to the front lines on behalf of their leader because they didn't want him to look bad. The church in these stories must be like Nathan. We must be like Nathan. We must be the ones who speak in God's voice against injustice and against abuse. That is the role of the church. We need to take that seriously. And we need to know that Nathan took on that role at great personal cost. Going to David and saying, you are that man. He could have been killed right there. That was tremendously risky for him. And the church should be similarly willing to take risks in the name of justice. If there's any human that we're going to elevate to the level of hero in the story, I think it needs to be Nathan. I think he deserves a little bit more credit than he gets. Take a look at your own life. Who are you like? Are you like David? Are you like Joab? Are you like Nathan? Are you like Bathsheba? Regardless of who you feel connected to in this story, I think it's important to look at God's response. God does not remain silent about the injustice that's committed against Bathsheba and Uriah. God centers their experience. God draws the attention back to the wrongs that were committed against them. God moves on their behalf. God uses Nathan to bring light into this dark place. This story isn't about what David did. The story is about what God did. Do we trust today that God is still speaking against injustice? Think about organizations that are connected to our church here, organizations like Arasha that speaks very boldly against injustice against creation. Think about International Justice Mission that speaks against oppressive working conditions and enslavement around the world. I think even about the black-led faith groups in North York over the past two weeks that have spoken up against the mistreatment of refugees in Toronto and provided shelter for refugees in their church buildings. 
These are examples of God bringing justice, speaking out against injustice through his people. Psalm 51 ends this way. It's, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. God doesn't care about our spiritual performance. He cares about your heart, about your repentance, about your transformation, and ultimately about restoring the joy of following him. I think one final note that we can pull from this psalm is that David, who was actually one of the better kings that Israel had in the grand scheme of things, um, he was a good guy. Or sorry, he certainly loved God, and he managed to lead the kingdom in the end towards disaster. Things actually did not improve for David after this point. Um, God had told his people that they didn't need a king, and then they needed to follow God. And yet, here they were. David's failure points us towards the need for a good king. Ultimately, any leadership failure points us toward the need for a good king. Jesus is the only leader who is not going to fail us. Are we following Jesus or are we following humans? There's a tension here, too. I want to name that because we want to believe that David was a good guy. He was a man after God's heart. He was also a creep. Both of these things are true about David in this story. Can we believe that both those things are true about someone? Can we believe that even in our own hearts, both of those things can be true? I love God. I'm following him. I do bad things. I want to be more like Jesus. I'm not kind to my neighbor. Can we believe about ourselves that two things can be true? This week, Dr. Lisa Ray Beal talked about this in relation to violence in Scripture at Summer Fellowship. She said, let's turn the mirror back to ourselves. Don't just say the people of the Old Testament were violent. Where am I violent? Where is my community violent? How is my city violent? How is my ethnic group violent? What does this text show me about myself, and am I part of the problem? In the midst of the tension of knowing that I want to follow God and I also sin, in the midst of that tension, I believe that God sees me exactly as I am. God saw David exactly as he was. God offers me grace again and again and again. God restores the joy of right relationship with him to me. God gives me a pure heart over and over. This is what's true about God. This is what we can believe about who God is. God is the hero of the story, then and now. Amen.